Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and this is the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. I love working with CEOs and their teams on cutting their people stuff issues by 75%, all while leading a team you love to lead. <laughs> That's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? Loving a team you love to lead. I am here today because I have a really exciting guest. I met her some time ago, maybe almost 10 years ago, at the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation when I was a staff member there. And I got to meet lots of powerhouses like her. Her name is Georgie Somerset. And let me tell you, she has got quite the portfolio of leadership positions to share. Currently, she is the general president at AgForce Queensland. She's been in the senior leadership role there for almost six years now. She is one of the directors at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, including during that interesting time when they stood down the chair and the managing director. She is currently the Wide Bay Burnett Regional Development Australia Committee or member of the committee. She has been part of the director for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, chair of the Red Earth Community Foundation of South Burnett, a director on the Children's Health Queensland Hospital and Health Service, (gasps) director of QRAA Queensland, and a director at Outback Sunrise. I love this story. She talks about it a little bit about, um, well, it's a motel in regional Australia. (laughs) And that's just some of her, her roles. She has been a very active leader and campaigner and strong voice for agriculture generally and also in leadership in general. She is a remarkable woman, very well-spoken, very intelligent, and very committed to serving the different purposes of the different organizations that she's on. So pay attention. Pay attention to her hard-earned wisdom and what goes into the perspective that she comes out with in the end. So it's a whole lifetime of experiences that generates this wisdom, and she's distilled some of these key nuggets for us. Okay, let's get into it. Georgie Somerset, what an icon. I am so excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Zoe. Great to be here. Georgie, one of the reasons I was so excited to have you is because you have such an enormous wealth of experience in these amazing organizations, particularly as a director. And you kicked off your career, and I think you're still a beef farmer. Is that correct? I am. I I grew up with both uh, sheep, more sheep than cattle, but I am very much over 30 years now living where I do on our family cattle property. So cattle are a large part of of my life. I love it. And for those of you who can't see what we're doing, Georgie has a wonderful screen background of some lovely cows in the background behaving quite nicely (laughs) in a virtual background. Um, Okay, so first big question, right? It's a classic leadership facilitator question. How do you define leadership? It is a great question, isn't it? Because I think everyone thinks differently about it. And I've always thought that leadership is that different people fill different leadership roles. But for me, it's about being able to see the possibility and then being able to communicate that possibility to a group of people so that they want to go there with you. So in a sense, being able to see where we want to go, know the, not necessarily know the way to go because often you need a team to know the way, but to be able to inspire others to trust you to take them to where you can see. And the journey is the bit for me about that's the real place of leadership is it's fine to be able to see where you want to go to, but how do you take those people safely on that journey and keep them safe throughout the journey so that you get to where you are aiming to go? So that's what it is for me. And, it, it you know, in big and small ways, and that's why I think leadership occurs 
for lots of different people in different ways because different people see the opportunity and how we harness that's really important. I think that's a really powerful skill to have is to see opportunity. I think if we were to hone that, that's sort of where the vision component sits. You know, if you have vision, you can see these opportunities. How have you crafted the ability to see opportunity? Is that something that you've put an x-ray vision on? Like, how do I actually develop the ability to see possibility? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? One of the sayings I used to hang on to for years was, you know, without vision, the people perish. And I think that still sticks with me. And I refer to myself as a bit of a Pollyanna. I do try and see possibility and opportunity rather than challenges and problems. But in terms of how do you cultivate that, I, I think one of the things I know that I'm, I've developed a real skill around is seeing the connection between disparate parts. And one of the things I love about having a portfolio career as a director is taking pieces from different industries and strengthening other organisations through that. And it's not necessarily just large to small. Sometimes it's small to large. And I do that with our own business as well. Getting away from the property gives me a different perspective. But sometimes I'll take really practical things from running our own business and apply that at a board level. So I think I know that I've worked really hard to see that there are ways you can apply things from different industries and take those and and you don't need to think in silos. I'm a great believer that we need to break silos down. And in my early days, I remember hearing someone talk about the little boxes on the hillside. People lived in the little boxes and all they ever did was throw their rubbish out the side doors and they went in the front door and out the back door. And, And what we need to aim to do to build community is to actually open the side doors so that we're not throwing our rubbish out towards each other, but we're actually connecting through our side doors rather than just through the front and back doors. And that image really stays with me quite powerfully that to build strength in organisations, it's about making sure that we're not little boxes on a hillside, but that we're actually connected across our departments, across our divisions, across our strategy, and that we're not just operating in a linear, either horizontal or vertical. We're not just operating in that sphere. I like that as an image, you know, it's like, I'll just look after my own stuff and dump things out on the corner and where my teammates can pick it up <laughs> or my neighbors. <laughs> yeah. And it, so it's, it's really emotive, isn't it? Like you can see it happening in organizations. You totally do. And I get this a lot from leaders who complain that their staff are siloed and that they don't want to look up and see how their actions are affecting the others. I like that imagery. I'm going to quote you on that next time we talk about silos. I think that's wonderful. Who's walking into your rubbish as you throw it out the side door? So go out your side door and have a look. I love it. So, you know, you've had quite an extensive career as a board director. What called you to that? What made you want to be a board director in the first place? Oh, that's a great question. I think I've just always loved being in the strategy and decision-making area. So when I was 17 and first left school, I ran a business for my parents on their station in Western Queensland and they gave me incredible largesse. I established a tourism resort and ran it with two friends and I did that for two years. And You set up the resort? You, you actually set it up from scratch and ran it at the age of 17? Yeah, so they've been fiddling around having a lot of international guests and bits and pieces. This was the mid-80s and I sort of said, look, if you're going to do this, you need to do it properly. It's, it's fine to have some French people fly in every month and have a bus here and there. But if you're going to do it properly, let's do it. So we set up accommodation for about 75 people, camping for 200 and about 25 caravan sites. And yeah, we worked from the bottom up. So we started in February as the heat started to die off a little bit and literally painted Shearer's quarters, renovated 
did the whole thing from scratch. And then we also had to cook and do the, the tours and everything. So I think that gave me a taste of running my own business. And I did go on to work for someone for a couple of years, but then I set up my own business when I was 20 and I've been self-employed ever since. And I think that's what I love about being a director is that you get to influence the strategy and the potential of a business. I think it's the most enormous privilege and you get to collaborate with a CEO, you get to select CEOs, but you get to set the strategy and the vision and then you help someone carry that out. And I, I really love that empowerment role of being able to change an organisation uh, from the inside. So to really ensure that the governance is strong and the foundations are strong for the future because as a director you're only there for a short period but you might have people who are using that organisation for all of their life or 20 years or whatever, you know, working for it or as a client and as a director you only have a small part to play in that but you get it's an incredibly powerful role and a really privileged role to actually set the direction and then work with the CEO to carry that direction out. There's a couple of interesting dynamics, I think, from a people stuff point of view that are worth exploring. I think one is the dynamic between CEO and board. Sometimes that works great synergistically. Everybody's on the same page. You have robust, fabulous discussions. And then sometimes it doesn't. So tell me, first of all, about selecting a CEO. What are some mistakes that you have seen or experienced when it comes to selecting a CEO? I think what's really important, I'm going to, rather than talk to mistakes, I think one of the things that I'm really aware of these days is culture and people because the CEO is so much of their role is people management. And while people might think about technical skills in a CEO role, usually the technical skills sit one level below that or, you know, at least one level below that. And so for me, a CEO is really about the that's the change agent or the culture holder. That's the people builder. And so where I have seen challenges with the CEO is probably when it is about technical, they've been selected more on a technical basis. And look, my experience has actually been really positive. I'm enormously privileged with the CEOs that I've worked with, but I think that that is where I see some flaws is where the, there's a focus on technical skills and they're really good at their job. And so we'll promote them to that next level and we've had really good reports or they've delivered good outcomes but are they a cultural fit and will they that will they care for our people because the more I work with organizations the more I see that the CEO spends an inordinate, inordinate amount of their time caring for their people and there's just no getting away from that because an organization the people are what makes it tick and the CEO in the end is responsible for making those helping those people to carry out their job and bringing them along. I think that's a really interesting observation. And I always believe that culture is good strategy. And uh, it's one of the things that many leaders come to late after they've had a disaster with culture. And they realize, hmm, maybe, <laughs> maybe I need to pay more attention to this. And for those leaders who are more technically minded, this is, is a big hill to climb. How did you develop your own people skills? Yeah, when you said that, I was sort of taken back to being a, a teen and I had a very sharp mind and I was the youngest of four, so I was not not afraid to use my words um, to find my space in, in the world. But I found in my late teens and early 20s that sarcasm didn't get you terribly far and being very quick-witted didn't build a lot of friends. Um, and I was really fortunate. I had an amazing mentor around that time 
who'd done a lot of work in North America as well and had worked with some really great teams but had been quite a change agent herself. And I think without me even realising it, she just taught me so much about building relationships. Look, Australia is such a small place that I still... I'm still in touch with people that I was working with back in the the late 80s um, in different ways because we often come full circle back to where we were originally working or we we stay in touch with people because we made a connection or built a relationship and I think that's what I learned early on and it's been one of the things that really stayed with me is to look after the people as you go through life because you never know when you might want to be back in touch with them again and you don't want to have burnt them. The old thing is, you know, don't step on people as you're going up the ladder because you might have to come back down but I really love the one out of Kirsten Ferguson's book about, you know, let's not just lift one person up, let's put down the whole fishing net and lift a whole lot of people up with us. And I think that's what I learned. I was fortunate to learn that early on and have some really wise people who, obviously very gently because I don't remember any just one episode, but taught me that it, that it was far, far better to build relationships than to be the winner in each situation. I like that. That's an interesting learning. You know, don't burn any bridges and don't step on people as you go up the ladder because you might come back to, you might have to come back down and see those squash people on the way back down. The book that you mentioned, Kirsten Ferguson? Yeah. What's the name? Do you know what the name of the book is called? Yeah, Womankind. So she talks about the social media movement a couple of years ago, and it's a fantastic book reflecting on all sorts of women and their roles across the world. It's a movement of kindness about women supporting women. I wanted to ask you about gender and leadership because you've worked in some agriculture is known as being a very male dominant industry. Its reality is quite different. Like women are quite involved in the sector. What has been your experience of gender bias, if any, as a leader, as a director in all of your roles? Is that something that comes to mind or is a problem or a challenge or a moot point? Look, it's different things at different times. And I think at different seasons of my life and probably at different cycles of what's been happening around me, you're right, women are incredibly involved in agriculture. And I grew up with a mother who did the books so and was the strategic thinker. My father was a, an ideas person, but, but mum was very much there beside him. And she also taught us in the schoolroom. So we had a lot of respect for her, her capacity in that sense as well. I actually think that at times it's been an opportunity for me in in a space because there's been opportunities provided to me because I was a young woman in agriculture working in regional development and those things. But I also think there's been unconscious bias along the way where I possibly didn't even realise it at times and certainly I don't think the men realised it. And I think there's just been times when, and I don't think it's as relevant now, but I think probably 10 years ago, when you thought about who was a leader, you didn't naturally think of women as leaders, but I really feel that's shifted a lot in the last 10 years. And for me, it's really about making sure that we have a, a full pipeline and we continue to tap people on the shoulder, both men and women. I still find that women need a little bit more encouragement to step up to roles and they still do find themselves at different stages of their lives more challenged with confidence. And I found this when I was working, I helped found the Queensland Rural Women's Network, which is... Um, transformed now to QREN um, and I was president for about five years, several years later. But what I found was that providing a safe space for those women to come together really gave them an opportunity to grow in their own confidence, which allowed them to step into different spaces, but that they were often their harshest critics. And it's also about helping women not to be harsh to each other because, in fact, I've probably suffered at the hands of other women in terms of scathing comments or 
quick retorts and, and painful put downs than I have from men who've in fact been incredibly supportive and have shared some real wisdom with me over the years. So I think that gender is a very complex thing and I think society conditions us in different ways and and how we respond later in life is often about how we were raised or surrounded as we came through and I just hope that we can encourage more kindness and more generosity and more encouragement and not feel that we have to keep holding the space for as long so that younger people can come through more quickly as well. It's a, yeah, it's an interesting one. And I'm curious about your experience that women have been the nastiest to you, more nasty than, than men at times. What do you think that's about? I think it's just a confidence thing. I think it's more they can appear to feel threatened and it's probably just a, you know, when you're not feeling as confident in yourself, the natural thing is to sort of want to lash out at someone else sometimes and and to put them down so that you feel a bit more in control. And I've probably at times without realising it been quite threatening to some people. And partly I think because um, although I might not have felt confident inside, I think I've developed some skills over the years of appearing reasonably calm and confident externally. And that can be quite rattling for other people. And I've, I've kind of gained that as I went along. I don't think I realised that I had that impact on people originally. Nothing so disturbing as somebody who's got grace under fire. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the opposite is true. Yeah, and I had a grandmother who used to say, just rise above it, darling, rise above it. You know, I still go back to that, you know, from when I was a teenager, just rise above it. Don't get involved, just step above. And I think that's sometimes a really good thing, just walk away. Was it an age factor involved in that? So was it older women calling you down, pulling you down, same age or younger women? No, it's probably more when I was when I was younger, you know, 10, 15 years ago. You know, it's certainly not something that I encounter as much these days, but I think that's I'm now in the older women section now, I think. <laughs> Sorry. So, um. <laughs> I don't ever own that one. No. <laughs> Somebody says you might be an older adult. I don't know. Jury's out. <laughs> yeah, look, I think I'm in the wise woman section. You know, I had a sort of, you know, you just don't realise it at the time. I was in my mid-20s and I'd moved to a rural community and I got involved in setting up a rural women's network across the state. Of course, we ruffled some feathers. We were wanting to do things differently and, you know, we faxed madly. You know, my fax machine never stopped. But I was in my mid-20s and I just, we were just going to do this, but I was really fortunate then to have women who were probably my age at the time and you know, my current age, and they were just incredibly wise and were very happy to encourage me. So I see that a bit as my role now is how do I encourage those women in their 20s, as men in their 20s who want to have a go, how do I find a space for them to have a go and step into the, the arena just as I was given that opportunity to, to meet with politicians and to be part of decision-making processes and be included in training and things that were real gifts at the time. That's fantastic. And I love this whole idea of stepping into the arena. One of the arenas that you've been in for a number of years is the ABC. And you've been on the board through that tumultuous time when both the managing director and the chair were set aside. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I don't want the details of what happened behind closed doors. I know you're not at liberty to divulge that. What I am interested in is what is that like from a leadership point of view when you are immersed in controversy on a very public stage? And what are the kind of pressures and stresses that you have to navigate as you go through that? 
Yeah, and look, I've, I've had that one. I've also been involved in a hospital and health service that spent quite a bit of its time on the front page of a, a metropolitan daily. They are interesting spaces. And I think what's come to light in the last few years is the role that directors do play in organisations and people's understanding of that. I think what it's really crystallised for me is my own sense of purpose and my own sense of, you know, what am I, am I truly comfortable with at the core and my own behaviour. In those sorts of situations, you find yourself in the bunker with people that you might never have met before and you work incredibly closely under pressure with a whole range of people. There are challenges there, but I also find that an incredibly, I guess it's experience that money can't buy. It's You can't really explain that to other people, but I can really sense when other organisations, and, and I guess I've watched during COVID some of the organisations being really challenged and I think, you know, I can imagine what their directors are going through and the pressure they're under. Often things are moving very fast and you have to be across it and you have to find the time and the space in your life, but you also have to be able to then step out and switch off. And for me, I'm incredibly fortunate that I have support mechanisms around me in terms of my family and my farm, which I think do allow me to just find space and quiet away from all of that and people who are not the slightest bit interested in what I do professionally. So I have a fantastic village around me who, at times like that, they might be interested, but they know better than to ask me anything about it. And so it'll just be a complete downtime. And I think you've actually got to develop those sorts of pressure release places where it's not, it is not about talking about it, it's actually removing yourself essentially from it. So you work and you work incredibly hard and it may consume all sorts of time but then you also have to be able to just step aside from that and decompress yourself in some way so that you can step back in again. And they're probably, you know, some of the things that I've learned through that process is how to, you are on your own in these sorts of situations. You're in there with your other directors, but leadership can be incredibly lonely and being a director can be incredibly lonely because you are the only people you can talk to about some situations, you know, deals, negotiations, whatever you're doing are the other directors. And even at times then you feel probably that that talking outside of official spaces is not not encouraged either. So you do just need to develop those skills where you can process things and you can find that space to think. And I think the other really important thing that we probably don't value enough these days is thinking time. And so just literally sitting and thinking and not doing but just being and actually letting our brain process some of the things that are happening and how we are going to lead the next space and how we are going to find that vision of where we're going to take the team to next because that's the role of the leader is to find a way through this and sometimes that means stepping out of the busyness and sitting in the quiet so that you can actually see the horizon because everyone else is still trying to find their way through the marsh. There's a lot of richness in what you just shared and there's a couple of things I want to pick up on. One of the, was one of the last ones was sitting and thinking time. There's been much said of different leaders who said that you need to carve out 20% of your time just to do thinking. And Bill Gates famously in the Netflix show that they showcase has a thinking week where he just takes himself away with a bunch of books and does thinking, deep thinking. When you do your deep thinking, is it a daydreaming kind of process or is it just like sort of letting things pass through your head or is there a structured way you go about thinking about issues? Look, there's different times and spaces and... Over time, sometimes it's actually been things like driving. I've had time to really think things through, you know, not listening to podcasts, not putting music on, but literally just sort of thinking things through and processing. 
so I think it is sometimes the old expression is, you know, you worry over it long enough until you undo the knot. For me, it's not so much worrying about it, but it's thinking about it from different things or the possibilities and the scenarios. There are times when thinking it while you, you know, you walk or you're active can be another way. I've had an interesting almost 12 months. I, I had a serious injury last year and so that's meant that I couldn't be as active and so I've literally had a lot of time sitting. There are times when I literally was just sitting and thinking things through. So there's a lot of value in it and, and our society tends to encourage busyness and productivity and I, I did some work with a woman called Patria King a few years ago and she said, you know, we used to actually... Um, if you were in rehabilitation, you actually were encouraged to sit and look at the view, you know, with a blanket on your lap and, and recover and allow your brain to reprogram itself. And in a way, there's been times in my life when I've had to do that as well, where I've actually had to give my brain space and time to reprogram and to think things through. And so that's, that's helped me realise that as a leader of an organisation, there are times when you just actually need to let your brain think about these things and reprogram itself and find a new way to problem solve or to, to relationship build and work through. So I don't have any one way of doing things, but I, I can't value highly enough just sometimes just sitting and being and sitting with it and thinking it through. How much is a beautiful view a part of that? I mean, you mentioned like put a blanket over your, over your legs and look at the view. Do you need a good view or is it helpful to you? Tell me a bit about that. Uh, well, see, I, I don't know. And I, I often wonder whether I could sustain what I do if I didn't come back to the farm because I think that the natural environment is a big part of me and, you know, the connection to the land is, is really important and I have always cherished being able to run or walk and, and be in the environment. So the last 12 months have been interesting for me. I had a, a month in hospital in the city and the challenge of that but even in that space, I had a window and, you know, I had a scrub turkey who would come up to the window in one of the, the rooms and then I had... Um, what? <laughs> I had nocturnal possums. A scrub turkey in the middle of, of, of the city? It's Brisbane. It's <laughs> okay. Brisbane, Zoe. Possums feeding on my tree at night. You know, okay. I've got photos of possums in my tree. So I think connection to nature has been really important for me and I'm really conscious that living on a property is like a gift because I get to immerse myself and I will... I'm not sure that I'll ever return to the freneticness I had pre-COVID and, and my accident, pre my accident, because I really value uh, even more being here in a natural environment. And I think that that actually gives me a different perspective on problem solving because it, when you live and work in the seasons, you understand that you are only part of something for a short period and you can't control it. You actually have to work with it. And it's a bit the same in an organisation. You are just there for a small period of time. It might be a 100-year-old organisation. You're there for five years. So what difference can you make in the five years you're there and what legacy can you create? And it's the same on our properties. You know, I feel like we've been here only for a heartbeat, but my 25-year-old son is not just tapping us on the shoulder. He's pushing us out of the way. And we're really excited about that. There's a new expression I have called intergenerational weaving. We still have my parents-in-law in their 90s living on their property and part of the community and now we have our son very much part of our business as well. And I embrace that sort of piece because I am just here for a short period but it is my responsibility to make things as good as I can while I'm here. And that's the sort of thinking I take through to organisations. I might be there for three years, seven years, 15 years but while I'm there I'm going to make it count. And I think connection to nature allows you to see that you are insignificant. The sun will come up again tomorrow. 
and you have to be part of a bigger picture to make a difference. That's a beautiful way of capturing it. It's a wonderful paradox. I'm here to make a difference and I'm not important at all <laughs> in the bigger scheme of things. And I think savvy leaders balance that all the time. You know, in the bigger scheme of things, we disappear. And yet I'm here to do some good. One of the things that gets in the way of us doing good, and you alluded to it a little bit earlier, and that's when you, let's say you're on a board and you've got all different characters. And I don't want to think that it's just different personalities. I think one of the challenges that I see with leaders struggle with is different perspectives and different leadership maturities. So you've, as you said, are a wiser woman. You've come to a lot of insights over the course of your experiences. And when you might be on a board with somebody who's got more limited perspective or more limited worldview, that can be really challenging. How do you navigate that? How do you work with that? Yeah, so I'm I'm chair of a board where um, we actually don't have that much control over who is on the board because they're all elected by the members, and so that's an even an, you know another whole dimension. And as the chair of that board, I see it as my responsibility to bring out the best in all those people and to find a a way and a space for each of them to contribute effectively, to feel that the boardroom is a safe space for them to to grow and learn, to share their wisdom, to not feel that they can't contribute. So that's the challenge, I think. You're a bit, the chair is is not the director, they're the coach. They're not the top of the table, they're in the centre trying to draw the threads together. And I think there's, there's a lot of planning that goes into how you can bring out the people around the room with you. And you can also do that as a member. You don't have to be the chair to do that. You can just be one of the members of the board by valuing other views and perspectives and having a broad and open mind that everyone around the table has something to contribute. And I see it as my role when I join a board to find out what is it that everyone else, what are their strengths, um, what can I learn from them? I've always believed that everyone has something to offer and I can learn from them. It doesn't mean that I'm great friends or I get on with everybody. It, It means that I've got something to learn and it's my choice about what I can learn from different people. One of the most amazing privileges for me of being a director is the people I have met and worked with that I would never have met as a beef producer in southern Queensland otherwise and I know I'm a better person for what I've learnt from them and what they've, they've offered me. So I think that there's a real responsibility when you're part of a board to actually try and bring out the best in everybody in some way. That's very generous of you. <laughs> <laughs> because it is really it is really challenging when you have people headbutting and I think say so what can I learn from them what how can I bring out the best in them is such a, a positive approach to it you are a board member of some very large organizations and I think that's an interesting responsibility in itself and we started earlier in the conversation we we're talking about culture and looking after the people how is leadership different if it is different as a uh, director for an organization that has thousands of people versus being a director for an organization that has a handful? Yeah, I think it's you are more removed when it's a really large organization, but it sometimes gives you more resources to work with as well. I found that in large organizations, and I'm talking here sort of, you know, around four, four and a half thousand employees, I've still been able to develop some really strong relationships with individuals within the organisation and recognise the role they play in the work they do without getting involved in operational matters but, but still respecting and valuing what they do at different levels. 
The other thing I found really interesting is how do you as a board of a really large organisation actually hear people at different levels? And that's something that you can have some control over in terms of giving them visibility of the board or actually connecting the board through to different levels. And for example, in our hospital and health service, we actually had patients come in and share their stories. And we were really deliberative about hearing from different levels of the organisation as well. So making sure we weren't just hearing from direct reports and and team leaders and things. In a small organisation, the danger is that you get too involved with the staff because you don't have as many resources and um, sometimes it's all hands to the wheel. And so stepping away from operational is something that you, you need to be really careful you're not stepping into that space. And I guess in a sense empowering your CEO to push back on you and say, well, that's nice, but you're the board and I'm actually, that's operational and I'll take care of that, thanks. And that is my decision to make. And I think that as a board you've got to really respect that CEO, you know, the CEO is responsible for management and operation and you can you can have a view and a, an opinion, um, but it is actually up to the CEO and it's not your call. And, and, and you often do end up with much closer connections to staff in smaller teams and smaller organisations. So you need to be careful that you don't step into that operational space. Oh, yeah, very tempting. It's like, I know, I know how I'd fix that. <laughs> here's, here's the prescription. And they go, thank you. Rip, rip, rip. <laughs> Throw it out. <laughs> nice to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for your helpful advice, is what I often say to my husband <laughs> for his contributions on anything to related to cooking. Yeah, that's a just total sidetrack. What I am interested in is leadership is often learning through experience and sometimes experience is in air quotes, you know, it's a euphemism for failure and mistakes. What has been a really challenging experience that you lived through as a leader and have learned from? Mm. You know, it's not been all sunshine and roses. And I think for me, what I had to learn was how to manage myself. I think that, you know, I have along the way expected too much of other people and burnt people and, you know, and, and chewed through things. And so, and, and it's probably only 10 or 15 years ago that I really learned that it was about me and and where there were difficult situations or difficult people. In fact, maybe I was the problem and my reactions could be better managed. And so learning that it's not about reaction, it is about management and response. And I guess there's, there's lots of small incidences that I can think of. There's no sort of catastrophic somehow I've managed to maybe slide through some of those but I did have some burning encounters in my early days of sort of you know when I was about 20 working in an industry body and this you know an early startup industry body as their executive officer and and some very very bruising encounters with some strong people who probably did know a lot more than me at the time and I can still recall how that felt and so I think that that's been quite pivotal for me to think I don't want to be in a situation where I'm treating other people like that and so it actually has taught me a lot of caution about how I treat other people as well um, those sorts of experiences can be burnt indelibly on your mind about how you were made to feel at the time if you're a feeler but I think for me it's been learning how to manage myself and my own my own response to situations and to people and to finding my own own space within that that's a really powerful insight and yeah, there's nothing more confronting than being given that feedback that, hey, the way that you showed up was pretty damaging. 
<laughs> and you're like, oh, really? <laughs> oh, oh, not so good. So last question for you. What has been the best piece of advice that someone has given you? Oh, look, I shared this this morning in a meeting and it's still really relevant. I was given it in my 20s and I was worried about the people who hadn't turned up and this person said to me, work with the people who do turn up. You know, work with those who are fully present. Work with what you've got. It's up to me to make the most of those people around me, the team I'm given. You join a board, you don't know the ins and outs of an organisation. You don't know the executive team and their capacity. You take a punt on a CEO. You take a punt on joining a board and who you're going to be working with. I've had lots of situations where I've actually landed on an advisory council where I don't know any of the other people and then you're thrown into working with them closely for five months and travelling with them and doing everything. So work with the people who turn up, who show up, who've got the guts to be in the arena with you and I think that that's really stuck by me that you can worry about the people who aren't there or how it could have been or you could just do the best with what you've got on the day. I think that's very sage advice from a very wise woman. <laughs> Georgie, thank you so much for sharing your insights. It's been wonderful hearing your stories. Thanks, Zoe. Great to chat. Wow, what I really loved about this conversation with Georgie was the really fascinating paradox of having to be so self-aware, so self-focused in order to be of service. So she talks a lot about knowing how to show up, how to communicate, how to connect and making sure that your own energy is managed, that your own brain is managed so well. So there is a deep focus on making sure that you are at your best as an individual so that you can show up and be in better service to others. I love the story that she tells about when I asked her about how do you deal with all these different points of view, different worldviews, different experiences, and deal with the inevitable conflict that comes from that. And her response was about, my role is to bring out the best in everyone. And so there was no judgment around people's experience and perspective. It was like, I'm here to bring out the best in everyone. How can I do that? Meet them where they are. And it takes a lot of composure and a lot of calmness and awareness to be able to do that without getting triggered. And I think it takes a lot of experience to get to that point. A lot of moments where you have tread on people's toes or said the wrong thing or had an impact you hadn't anticipated. And she sort of alludes to that a little bit in the conversation. Uh, so I think the key takeaways for me are reinforcement of the fact that it's always culture delivers on strategy and we need to pay attention to our people. Without people, there is no organization. So yep, tick, that's confirmation bias at work right there. <laughs> so I highly support that point of view. And the other piece was about the practice of defragging her brain. She didn't call it that. That's sort of my words putting on it. The importance of just thinking or just reflecting or just being as an integral part of a strategic process. And I think that's a really important thing that not many leaders do. And I think if we incorporate some moments of that, especially looking at a beautiful view, and I do believe it does help facilitate reflection and processing better, then that will amplify our ability to lead better because it will allow new and different connections. Right. Well, if you love this and you've got something to share, I would love to hear from you. So if you want to leave a comment on our podcast page, the link is in the show notes. That'd be terrific. If you want to email me directly because you're a little shy, that's totally cool too. Zoe at intercompass.com.au. Send me your questions, send me your comments, send me your wisdom, send me your recommendations for future podcast guests. I would love to hear from you. It actually really makes my day when I hear from listeners. <laughs> so 
you could have the opportunity to make my day. <laughs> All right. In the meantime, live well, lead well.